ready to start this up again. What were you saying, Cormac, when I hung up on you? And then I was sitting there, and, and they built it wrong. Welcome to the Arcaspeak Podcast. I'm Evan Troxell. Each episode, Neil Pan, Cormac Phelan, and I have a casual conversation about all things architecture, and we invite you to listen in as we talk about everything in the profession, both the good and the bad. Maybe you're considering a career in architecture, you're still in school, or you've been around the blocks of Corbusier's City of Tomorrow more times than you'd like to admit. Join us in the studio as we stand around the water cooler and talk about why we love our chosen profession. It's time for some Arcaspeak. Well, with that, we should welcome everybody to episode 26 of the Arcaspeak podcast. I'm Neil Pan. I'm Evan Troxel. And I'm Cormac Phelan. And Evan, we have a friend of the show to announce. Yeah, we do. Amy McGee for the second time around here. They're a repeat offender. She donated ten bucks and her Twitter handle is at Twitties McGee. And thank you, Amy, for supporting the Arcaspeak podcast again. And uh we really appreciate it. So everybody else out there, go to Arcaspeakpodcast.com slash donate and we'll read your name on the show as well. So thanks again, everybody. She's she's too kind. She is way too way kind. too kind. Yes, thank you, Amy. So this is the twenty sixth episode. This is uh, it's been a year. It has been a year. We're closing out the year. That's right. At the start of twenty fourteen. Yeah. So who who would have thought? So we get to go on vacation now. Now we can finally. I thought we were going to go on like a hiatus, right? A summer hiatus, like regular TV show at the end of season one. They they take three or four months off you know what yeah, i should take a week off <laughs> yeah that's, a, that's nice that's what it. we normally do and then we record the next one and we come out every two weeks <laughs> so yeah enjoy it. it oh thank you evan you're so kind yeah you know i'll just be sitting here editing no you'll be done with editing because we're going to publish on sunday oh okay well it'll be perfect there won't be super bowl any, sunday there won't be any editing no there. cormac the show comes out on Pro Bowl Sunday, the game that nobody watches. Oh, it comes out this weekend. Yes, this weekend, eh. as we record this on now Friday. <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> Nothing like procrastination. Almost Friday. I think we talked about that once or twice or three times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember those episodes. Don't make me put that in the show notes. You gotta go back. Yeah, speaking, you know, we got that email from Sam Cleveland, and he said he's gonna go back and listen to all of them again. I, I want to ask Sam. I mean, Sam is somebody brave. holding a gun to your head to make you do this? <laughs> <laughs> Why would you do that? Thank you, though, Sam. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's the kind of email that. Uh, that was a good. You know what? That was a fantastic email. That's very cool of him. And we got some cool voicemails over the last couple of weeks, too, from a few different people. So I'll, th I'll throw yes. a couple of those in. Hi, Eric. This is Steve Hall. I am responding to the 
RFI you guys submitted in podcast 25 regarding caulk. Um, so the word caulk is actually a bad word. Uh, it's actually been removed from master spec. Um, caulk technically refers to a very specific type of latex acrylic sealant that uh, at best only lasts about five years. It's really not appropriate for most situations. And But sealant, on the other hand, is the generic term that refers to the spec section, which spells out all the types uh, according to your application performance. So if you say sealant, you're covered. The caulk uh, could spell big trouble, especially if you're using master spec. So a lot of firms strike the use of the word caulk to avoid problems. And that's the backstory on why I said uh, never caulk. So anyway, great show, guys. Uh, I really enjoy uh, Arca Speak. Uh, sometimes tune in uh, to shows, old shows in the middle of the night while I'm drafting. Makes me feel like I'm in studio again. And um, I find it hilarious that on the episode about spelling, Cormac's name is misspelled in the episode summary. Uh, that's priceless. Um, and one last request on spelling, if I could make it. Um, can we can we please all architects agree to spell facade in English? Um, F A C A D E. You know, ASCII 128 without the cedilla, uh, like all the rest of our borrowed words. Um, no exceptions. Anyway, thanks again, guys. Keep it up. This was kind of fun. Maybe I'll uh, call in again sometime. Talk to you later. Bye. Hey, guys. This is Mark R. LePage from Entrepreneur Architect. I'm just calling to uh, congratulate you on an outstanding year at uh, ArcaSpeak. I just finished up listening to your episode 24 and uh, listening to all the amazing things you guys have done this year. And I wanted to just call and thank you for your service to the profession. I think you're doing a great job. Uh, and even more importantly, to keep us all entertained every couple of weeks uh, with what you say and what you do. As far as the New York meetup, I'm all in. We'll definitely schedule something for spring or summer of uh, 2014. Watch my uh, probably Facebook or Twitter. I'll catch you guys on Twitter, and uh, we'll set something up. And we'll do that in New York City, and we'll invite the whole world to show up with us, and we'll hang out and have a great time. And lastly, uh, I'm waiting for my T-shirt. Can't wait to get it. Looking forward to it. Um, I ordered it as soon as I saw it was available, and I uh, can't wait to get it. So that's it. Sorry for the long message. You guys have an awesome 2014, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys do uh, this year. Have a great one. Thanks. Bye. So thank you to everybody who's uh, been burning up the uh, the hotline here, the ArcaSpeak hotline, uh, in 2014. I mean, we I think we got more calls in January. You All know. of our pagers went off at the same time. There's a there's a new voicemail on the hotline. The, Neil got a telegraph. The bat signal went out. Yes, I I want people to call and tell us their their architectural horror story for the week. Oh, know. that'd be good. You know, that would actually be great. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you know, if it's good, you got to keep it to like a minute. Though. Yeah, keep it to like a minute no. or so, or a minute, a couple of minutes at most, right? And then and then just... I'm gonna I'll, I'm filling up of at least two hours. <laughs> Cormac, you get to talk during the show. It's your own separate <laughs> you podcast. You can't call into the hotline. No. I... no. 
That would be great. Was, Wouldn't that I be? I thought you said it was a helpline. Well, I tell you, <laughs> if it if it if if it gets that bad, we're going to have to do a special, you know, helpline sort of episode. <laughs> and then I was sitting there, and and they built it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or I got to call it. What time was it? Five o'clock at, at the end of the day, and I spent two and a half hours on the phone dealing. We need an intervention. De- it was six o'clock. Oh, it was yeah. six. <laughs> okay, it was six o'clock. I stayed a little bit late. Who is and... the idiot who answered yeah. the phone at six o'clock? It wasn't me. But we there, won't all name I, names. All I, all I hear yelling across the the office was, "Cormac, you still here?" <laughs> like, yeah. Too late now. Exactly. Him? Cormac? No, he he left a couple hours ago. Cormac who? Cormac who? Oh, that 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 guy. He's not here. This is Charles, not Cormac. Hey, I got plenty <laughs> of work done though. You know. All right. So well, now I don't have to go in tomorrow and answer those four RFIs. They're already done. Well, there you go. There's your pro tip for the week. Stay till eight and get the work you could do tomorrow morning done the night before. Speaking of RFIs. Sealant or cock? He's right. Sealant. Sealant. <laughs> Sealant. Another good phone call. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely yeah. right. That was a great one. So, yes, everybody, please, you know, if you've got some interesting story that happened to you during the week or in the last couple of weeks, you know, feel free. Call in. Let What's it out. What's the number? Uh, I don't know. No, it's... Uh, <laughs> He can't just spring that on me. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, it, I, I know it. It's 415-484-8496. So, All right. So call in. Call the Arcus Peak Podcast helpline. Is it the... And if you can't get through to that one, let me give you a Neil's cell phone number. <laughs> it's... Hey nine, guys, do you, one one? No, no, that's, no. Nine one six. No, no. What were those? What were those numbers? All right, now that's a different podcast. Actually, this does come through to my cell phone, so you'll you'll be getting me anyway. So yeah. So thank you. Yeah. So make uh, sure it's like three a.m. ish. That's okay. You Pacific. Can, uh, hey, Apple introduced the do not disturb function. Works great. <laughs> I never hear it. Good call. Good call. Thank, thank goodness for iOS seven. Thank you. <laughs> so, so we're, we've got a, a number of topics, all kind of centered around a few basic ideas that I think we want to talk about. Right? Yeah, sure. You sound so convinced. Go ahead. <laughs> talk about it. Well, are, what were those? What are those? You gonna make me do it? Sure. Architectural determin- determinism. See, I can't even say it right. You know that the. Well, I'm going to read this quote because I'll I'll butcher it. But anyway, it, it's a way to describe the practice of groundlessly asserting that design solutions would change behavior in a predictable and positive way. That's what that basically means. It was uh, coined by a. A British planner Maurice Brody in 1966, but but the idea that architecture can, you know, affect behavior of people, and 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 how do we do that, and and who's done it, and has it been successful? 
wait, did you see this uh, this quote? That's even better. Oh. You, no. you can kill a man with a building just as easily as with an axe. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a little bit further down in the article, but still. <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. So what article are you talking about? This is the one, what, it, well, it's titled Building, I assume this is the one you're talking about, Building a Better World, Can Architecture Shape Behavior? Yeah, I mean, I think something that's interesting about this topic to me working in school and civic design is that um, you're working with a huge design team on the client side, and there's all kinds of tug of war that's going on when you're working with with the multi-headed client, as we like to say. And, uh, you know, so you've got people on the board, you've got people at the school, you've got people in administration, you've got someone in finance, you've got facilities, people who are um, mostly concerned about maintainability and, and the systems that they're used to maintaining and um, stuff like that. So you've got all this different tug of war happening of who wants what. And it's and it's our job to kind of listen to all of them and figure out what's what's the best thing for, for this project with all of that input. But... I find something that's incredibly interesting is how, you know, there's never enough money, almost never enough money. There's, there's always almost never enough money to, to build the school that everybody wants. Right. But right. the classrooms are typically, um, the most bare bones spaces in the entire complex, but they're the ones that are being utilized the most. And I think that right. this is kind of the, the thesis that I, I was thinking about as we were talking about the topic for tonight, because I read on uh, Jim Meredith's blog, which is uh, MeredithStrategyAndDesign.com, all spelled out. He had an article called Groundbreaking Architecture Equals Groundbreaking Research, and he was basically writing about um, the relationship between um, physicists and the buildings that they do their work in and how many of the huge physics breakthroughs that have happened throughout the 19th and 20th centuries all happened in pretty boring buildings um, because it really wasn't about space inspiring them. And in fact, they were saying that the the cafe was the most important space in the whole building. And so maybe there was some architectural attention placed on that to get people to collaborate stuff. But, you know, thinking about the the projects that we work on at the school, I think we kind of take the same approach. We we look for opportunities where paths cross between classrooms, between neighborhoods, between floors, and we try to make those spaces interesting and a place for students to see the work of other students who have different focus in their education so that they can be kind of revealed to, to that, the different ways of thinking and teaching and working with their hands or working in the books and stuff like that. And even in the building that we work in, it's kind of set up that way. And I think you were talking about Pixar's building being like that too. Yeah, Pixar's uh, building, it was revealed in uh, the Steve Jobs biography um, when they were designing that, that they were purposely trying to, you know, design the common spaces. And I think you mentioned like, you know, bathrooms far away to, to try and create that different spaces or different uh, areas or where people are going to have to walk by each other, where those types of collaborative, creative sessions could just 
spring forth by accident. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's similar in what the article, this actually Jim Meredith's article linked to one in Financial Times Magazine, which was talking about laboratories and stuff. And the physicists that they interviewed, you know, they were basically saying that those were, the cafe is the most important place because that's where they get to talk to other physicists. And they're not working on the same thing. So they get these outside um, set of eyes you know, or a set of ears listening to what, what you're working on and, and they get to interject and collaborate. And, you know, that's the same thing we do when we, we hold design critiques, right? I mean, some people are invited who are not working on the project and a lot of times they'll take a good idea and make it a great one. So I think it, it's it's similar. I think we're talking about the same thing there. Well, going back to what you were talking about with, you know, school design, you know, I can't help but think of um, some of the design standards that some of the um, school boards that I work for or work with, um, you know, they pretty much make a lot of the elementary education uh, classrooms very self-contained. So there isn't really that opportunity to, you know, get out and collaborate. You know, they primary has, you know, a basically block wall interior vct you know bathroom is in the classroom you know so they never really get out and get a chance to do that so you know you always have to look for one what opportunities you know within that particular room can you have but then you also have you know what what you're saying is like okay now that you're out and kind of free of the classroom what are some of the other opportunities, you know, breakout spaces within the corridors, you know, all these little things, you know, that, you know, just give you kind of like these little opportunities. But, um, you know, (laughs) thinking about, you know, okay, so they've got these collaborative spaces like, you know, the, the coffee bar and like the cafe and things like that. And, um, you know, I mean, we, we've got, you know, something similar in our office as well, you know, where, you know, a lot of times people basically are hovering around the, uh, the coffee maker waiting for some coffee and just kind of, you know, shooting the breeze. Um, and in those particular like self-contained classrooms, what can you do to actually make that environment better? I mean, because they aren't really, you know, like the, uh, in the article where, you know, they're just kind of doing a singular minded um, you know, task, you know, working, you know, doing some kind of like physics experiment and they're just, re- they don't really care about the surroundings, you know, it's in, very inwardly focused. Right? Yeah. It's where, like, where is micro, whereas like in, you know, an elementary education, you know, type setting, it, it is a lot more social, um, you right. know, and, and how do how do you make those self-contained, you know, classrooms really kind of sing, you know, and that's where we kind of come in and, and really try to make that environment a lot more inviting and a lot more conducive to, you know, the learning environment. Yeah, I Um, think, you know, there's definitely a trend to create, because technology is growing so fast, the rooms are really just an enabler for technology to happen, where you get a lot of wall space, you know, teachers like to tack stuff up on the walls and stuff, but there's there's big surfaces for projection. one thing that's interesting to me, though, you know, more than just how you skin the room or the colors and stuff you use is even things that we consider when it comes to the shape of the room, mm-hmm. because you are kind of governed by an overall target for square footage for these spaces. You know, it, we're we're always typically targeting about 960 square feet for a classroom. Yep. 
Yeah. But, um, you know, for a typical classroom, not a lab. But you can shape that room in many different ways. You can do 30 by 32. You can do 24 by 40. You can do, you know, 25 by 28. There's all these different kind of numbers that work. And depending on how you lay that out, if you go with a more rectangular classroom, you could kind of a little bit more easily divide that room in half and have two smaller groups of kids using it because of that rectangular right. shape. Whereas if you're right, right. in more of a square 30 by 32, that works well for a classroom where maybe the teacher wants to be in the middle and have a ring around them of all these seats, you know, and, and everybody's kind of equidistant from the teacher. So it, it a lot of times comes down to what the teachers want or what the district wants and, you know, the, what are the their latest trends that they're seeing when they're designing these new classrooms um, to how do they want to teach? And I, I think that that's always a really interesting conversation. Do you ever find, just for curiosity's sake, do you ever find the struggle of, you know, when you're given a an, an ed spec or something and it's got all this casework, all of this, you know, tack boards and marker boards and everything else that, you know, they require X amount of linear feet of all of this stuff. And you have to have, you know, as much natural light as you could, right. you know, get into there. <laughs> and you're like, okay, so you've got all these windows, you've got all this glass, but you've got all this crap that you want to put on the walls. You know, <laughs> you're yeah. just like... You know, where are you, where are you getting all of this space? And it's 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 kind of fun because you know it's just it's an interesting way of you know figuring out how you can kind of configure the room to be as flexible as possible. Because you know, I mean, being married to a teacher, I I know that she liked you know she loves doing like these little breakout spaces. Um, you know, she likes to reconfigure the room a lot so that you know they're not just in a static, stale environment. That you know you yeah. you do have you know kind of a you know, ooh, you know, you change it the, up. The, yeah, yeah the, the room was set up like this, you know, earlier in the year. Now it's set up like this. So, you know, it's just not the same thing all the time. Right. And, uh, you know, so, you know, trying to within the, you know, rectangular walls, try to get the most flexibility out of it, um, you know, is always a fun challenge. And, and you know, I, I, you know, starting my career off doing more, you know, civic stuff and not really doing any schools, you know, I've, I, I actually really enjoy doing schools a lot more because, you know, it, it, the environment, you know, of just kind of trying to create something that is pretty generic and trying to like, you know, push it so that, you know, you can enable learning, you can enable these, you know, aha moments and stuff. And just like the most, you know, like obscure little corner of the room, you know, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I worked on a project, uh, in San Marcos that, which is down in San Diego. And a lot of schools we do in California are kind of a bunch of separate buildings put together on a campus and you make kind of a, an overall campus complex. Right, but this right. school was more or less one big building. And, you know, we don't get that too often out here in California. That's a lot more prevalent in the Midwest. Um, or or what we do. I or, mean, yeah, because of the weather, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, it's typically the big driver behind that. But out here in Southern California, it's this was different for us. And one of the approaches that we took was it was a K-8. So the kids were going to be there for a long time. And, and this kind of gets back to these articles where you're creating pathways that people yes. cross. And, and we had designed it where... There was there was a lot of interior circulation when you have one big building and it kind of 
broke off in all these different directions. And one of the ideas that we had was that as the kids grow up and they're in this space, you know, they're going to be there for eight or nine years, whatever, you know, 10 years, maybe if they're, no, <laughs> but, uh, if they're Neil, but, uh, it was, it was, the idea was that, you know, kids would find, because not only are they going to be in a different classroom every year, maybe as like a home base, but they're going to find new ways to get from one place to another in the campus as they mm -hmm. grow up and as they're more and more familiar. And these are going to be kind of pathways that they establish and they get to teach to the younger generation as they, you know, move up a year and then they can say, okay, now that you're, you know, it's kind of like the secret handshake, right? It's like, now that you're a sixth grader, I'm going to show you what I, you know, the back way, the secret way to get to the multi-purpose room. And so we we had designed in, and and kind of the idea was like an an ant farm. You know, when you see that cross section, and you get to see all these cool little pathways that connect this big community space to this other classroom or this other public space. And we had started to think about it like that, and and I thought that was a neat way for us to explore the this whole notion of of intersection where the people you know the it's just as interesting interesting what happens outside of the classroom as what happens inside the classroom and and something that we were really focusing on was that learning happens everywhere so there's indoor classrooms there's outdoor classrooms there's these collaboration spaces that are breakout rooms but then there's also community spaces and just the way that the these spaces all get woven together with these different pathways it's similar to what they're talking about in these articles where, you know, those are the times when people can really talk about ideas with other people that they're not spending six hours in a classroom with or in a laboratory with. And I think that's a very interesting way that architecture can start to um, inform behavior, right? Because it, it creates a place for that kind of thing to happen. Um, and then you can start to take it further once you introduce different types of materials and colors. I mean, it's definitely been shown that color and material and stuff can affect mood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways that architects can actually. And I think it's funny because the, the definition that Neil read up front was that it was baseless. <laughs> right. That if we went back and read that again, it was it was very terse in the way that they say that i believe it was oh, yeah. groundless but groundless yes yeah, groundless but i mean that brings up you evan you were just talking about the ant maze and um but what what do you do i mean because you're talking about uh, when you dealt with the different pathways and different ways to create interactions but what if you take it to that next level which one of the articles points out uh, Frank Geary's uh, Stata, Stata uh, Center at MIT, where mm -hmm. he took it even further, where he did manipulate the inside spaces, uh, and you know, and and actually the outside spaces in very strange and odd ways. Uh, which um, we'll put another art, uh, link to uh, um, another article about asking if if that actually if it really works for a lot of other reasons like waterproofing and other uh, other problems like that that this this structure's had but uh but you know but i find it very interesting I, and i've never been to it but so if anybody has uh, that's listening to the podcast please let us know what your experience was you know visiting this but it, it would seem like you know what frank gary did here was take that same idea but now 
take it to the next level to the interior spaces you know instead of yeah. just doing the different shapes of the rooms that you guys were talking about with schools but let's just completely blow that up and yeah do i different think well shapes. i well that's what i think i think we're talking about that too because it that stuff becomes really interesting the pathways between the spaces mm-hmm. can also be a place where learning happens i know that like like they did it at, at mit um you know, he says right here, it sounds contrived, but the communal spaces are the places where a spontaneously struck up conversation might lead to the kind of breakthroughs that every institution is looking for. I mean, they're actually saying that this building attracts the top physicists in the field because of the type of breakthroughs that happen there, because the architecture has enabled those things to happen. And I feel like schools can be like that, too. You know, we aimed a corridor so that when you're looking out the end of it, you're looking at the university across the hill mm-hmm. so that you can see where you're going in the future. Nice. And that's an important yeah. connection for education of all these kids. If they're going to be there for eight years, they want to see what's coming next, right? So what, so, you're, so what you're really saying, Evan, is that all of our clients out there should pay us more money because of all the effort in uh, design that we're putting into these buildings that they're not even going to notice. Well, they will notice it because (laughs) you're you're going through that process with them. And I feel like when we brought things up like that during the meetings, Uh they'd get a big old grin on their face. Right. And oh, oh my God, let me they they become part of the story. You're talking about the people who are working there. And sure. Well, let me rephrase that. that, Then our clients need to pay us more for the value that we're bringing to their project (laughs) because their kids and and their teachers and in those cases or their the the scientists are going to want to work in that building you yeah. know so that's the value so so sometimes when you know like what we're going to pay you how much money to design our building well yeah you're going to pay me the that value is way higher because yeah. look at the value that i as an architect am bringing to your project and sometimes that's really hard to put a dollar to number two right i mean that's sure. hard to to put that dollar value to but you know that's the challenge that we as architects have well, when we're, you know, talking to a client about how much this is going to cost. You know, we're not yeah. just a drafter going to, here, here's your plan for your kitchen remodel. It's like, no, I'm going to design you a kitchen that is going to be so cool that when you go to sell this house, it's going to sell for fifteen or $20,000 more than your neighbor's house because you've got a cool design kitchen, right? Well, we so should be doing that. You, you need to pay me though. more money. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, the the definition of design is obviously more than delivering a, you know, the most basic programmatic requirements. To me, you know, design is, it is a moving human experience. You know, it is something that, that creates these moments. It is something that raises the level of your client, your client's client, you know, and in Mark, in our case, it's, you're, you want to raise the level of, of this kid's education. You want to raise the level of the teachers who are giving that education. You want to give them the tools spatially that they can use to deliver the best education possible to these kids. And, and you're right, Neil. These are things that aren't something you can put a direct dollar value to, but they do make a difference in the overall um, the transformation of that enterprise that's involved. You can definitely make them better and i think that that is part of our goal as architects when we're working with these clients is to open their eyes to those types of possibilities i mean you know yeah yeah i mean when neil was saying you know how do we quantify that dollar we should be bringing that 
to the table every time we do a project, regardless. I mean, so when we are fashioning a fee, it's not, hmm, how do I quantify, you know, this value that I'm bringing to it? Them hiring you is the value. You bringing those skills to the table to create the best possible design is that value. So, you know, when you're fashioning your, you know, fee proposals, all of that's part of it. I mean, it's already built in. I mean, yeah. there there isn't, you know, well, okay, I'm going to give them a fee proposal of the bare bones, just, you know, just get to a code compliant building. You're giving them, you know, you're giving them a fee on, I'm going to give them the best and baddest, you know, building that I could possibly give them because that's what I do. Um, yep. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I feel like, too many times uh, architects design the building for other architects to look at, right? It's about the fashion. Right. And and honestly, your client could say, make it Mediterranean. And you should say, okay. And oh, you dude. should, it, because you'll notice that when you, the things that we're talking about here have nothing to do with what it looks like on right. the outside. Right. It no, all it's... has to do with the planning. It all has to do with the functionality of creating place for amazing things to happen. And that that can happen in practically anything. That it, it does it almost doesn't matter what it looks like. It's 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 like these old physics buildings that they're talking about, these dilapidated boxes that people worked in. But it was all about the energy that was created in the working environment on the inside that that really made those breakthroughs possible. And I think that that's still true in the institutions that we're designing today. Oh, yeah. But yeah. too many people f- feel like the architect is only there to make it look a certain way. I, th- I think it's interesting. If you go through, if you look it up on Yelp for the, the MIT building, I mean, the ratings are pretty stellar. People love the building. Um, and they're talking about how irregular... It, it is, but how inspiring it is. And I think that's really something that's a lot of people overlook about space is that it can be inspiring, right? And I mean, that's that's when you feel like you're really successful, right? Is if people can, can come away and feel inspired after being in a space, I mean, how, what better job can you possibly do? I, you're right. <laughs> Speechless. <laughs> Okay, so that no. wraps up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Evan's right. I mean, you know, it it's it never should be our. I mean, you know, yeah, we all go into a design process, you know, with a little bit of selfishness, saying, you know, ooh, I'm going to make the you know best looking building I can, and you know, you know, and that's that's not something that we should kind of shrug at and say, okay, well, don't do that, but. If that's your one and only goal, it's not going to be a very successful building. It may be pretty on a picture, but it's not going to be this, you know, emotionally evoking, you know, space, you know, and and, and that's what we should really be, you know. So that's what, you know, so when you're talking about how do you quantify that in your fees, I mean, you don't have to. That's what you're bringing. Yeah, I feel like there's too many times when if if somebody gets wind that the client only wants the building to look a certain way they kind of 
give up and and basically yeah say well there's no more design opportunities here when to me it's like okay now we know that constraint okay we got that out of the way exactly now let's look at where all the opportunities are because there are so many and honestly the success of a project comes down to what those clients talk about afterwards right and and for how long they talk about it because really that's what's going to get you your next job I loved working with this architect because they solved my problems and they brought this extra stuff to the table and they did exactly what we wanted, but they did even more than that. And I feel like if, if that's, that's what the argument about what architecture is right there. It's, it's about how did we raise their level? Well, so guys, I want to ask this. I'm going to jump in going back to the very first article, Mm -hmm. get your guys's opinion on this. There's a few architects uh, quoted in this article. Most specifically, I'll point out a couple of them just because they're kind of fun. But uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, um, when designing, or you go, it says here, designed falling water. Okay, we know that. Similarly believed appropriate architecture would save the U.S. from corruption and turn people's backs back to wholesome endeavors. And then also uh, Le Corbusier, uh, about Villa Savoie said that that building would heal the sick. So are these guys just being crazy or did they, do you think they really believed well, it or, or they, were they that deep into what they thought they were designing that, you know, really a building could heal the sick? I mean, maybe. Well, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, maybe you not don't necessarily have to take that literally. Okay. Well, how would you, know, you take as, it then? I mean, you know, if, if you want to just, Rather than looking at, you know, Corb's, um, you know, quote at face value, you you look a little bit deeper into it, you know, creating spaces that kind of heal your soul in a way. I mean, you know, you kind of, it just makes you feel better to be in a specific space. I mean, you you can also also go back to probably even, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, comment, you know, I mean, these are when... I'll give you a good example. So I was walking through, you know, the the bureaucracy of, you know, the school board, you know, when you've got, you know, a department of, you know, construction or capital, you know, uh, capital construction. Um, you know, you've got all these different people. And, and so I usually deal with the project manager, you know, on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, when their bosses come out, you know, I, I was walking through um, the my Annapolis uh, project and we were walking through and as i as we turned the corner she just blurted out really quick holy shit that's cool and it was because this you know this gesture that I, we did with the corridors we basically you know made these corridors kind of as you turn the corner you're face to face with the state capitol building um but then you turn the corner again and you're overlooking the um the there's in downtown Annapolis, you know, it's they've got a city docks area with, you know, where, you know, all the old clipper ships and, you know, things like that used to come in. And so you're overlooking that. And then you turn the corner again and you're into the media center. Now you're overlooking um, the uh, Naval Academy. And she never realized that when we were going through all of these things. Now she's actually seeing it in practice and she's like, wow. I didn't, I mean, you know, it was such a visceral reaction. And going back to Corb's, you know, 
um, you know, this building would heal the sick. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe not heal the sick and, you know, heal their wounds or anything, but maybe it's that feeling of like, wow, this is a really great space. You know, this is a space that I could just sit back and relax and just kind of unwind and feel better about, you know, the crappy day I had or something. Sure. I mean, there's you know, spaces in, in just about every building there's there's going to be some spaces that are depressing and some that are uplifting oh yeah yeah i mean and they could be indoor they could be outdoor they could be whatever but i mean it could it, it could have to do with the light it could have to do with the height the volume the color there's so many things that play into that that we know that buildings can make people sick yeah right my boy my boiler room's a uh, dank nasty dungeon <laughs> that's where you're you recording know? right yeah. That's why Cormac's exactly. always depressed when he's recording. So now we yeah, know why. Be... <laughs> no. It's just a cold it's just a cold basement. <laughs> but well, what but happens means... when architecture fails though? Uh, and what I mean by well, that is another uh quote in here where um some buildings were designed here and uh I guess it was Joseph Lee Weber provided uh, community spaces and safe enclosed play yards. But by the 1960s, however, it was seen as a hot spot for crime and poverty and demolished in the 70s. So there's, you know, the guy tried something and yeah, thought it would happens. work and we failed. Right. And wham, torn down. So it's interesting how over time, you know, we do, we try these things and what we think would work and maybe it does for a short while, but then it gets used in a different way and maybe goes downhill. And then suddenly we realize, yeah, that was horrible. Well, I think a lot of that makes a lot of architects gun shy, right? I mean, there's a lot of people who only expect perfection. And when you're failing with a project that big where it has to be demolished, I mean, that's that's failing in public, right? And that's... <laughs> It's on display. That failure is on display and it's taken down. But I mean, that it, that's part of the scientific method. I mean, you you sure. do have to put things out there and try them. And, and, and it's not like the architect made all those decisions all by themselves. Yeah, you you know, in this particular case, I mean, you know, what what you were talking about, and this is the case countrywide, really, is these were the projects. You right. know, these were these were housing projects, right. and right. you know they were they were they were built to respond to you know the social need, you know the community need for a lot of housing, and they thought it was a social experiment that you know these could be gathering spaces and all that other stuff, and it didn't work out that way, um, you know because it, it could have been because there was a lack of diversity. You know, it could have been, you know, for a variety of different reasons in it, you know, so, you know, Evan, you're right. I mean, you kind of get, you follow this pattern that, you know, and it, it wasn't just the architect, you know, in fact, it, it, you can almost go back to blaming Corbu in a way when you're talking about these, because, you know, he came up with these city blocks of building after building after building that was just kind of this, you know, way of, you know, housing the masses, I don't want to get off. I think you might call that architectural rigor. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I don't. I didn't want to get off on that tangent, so I'm going to stop. (laughs) That one, you know, because that that's that's really honestly a different conversation altogether. About you know, um, because we I I was having a conversation with uh, you know some of the more recent graduates in our office, and we were talking about um, an interview that she had watched with. 
oh my gosh, who was it? Uh, one of the New York Five architects, not Meyer. Um, I, but anyway, it the he, you know he was he was going on about how architects don't have any social res- they don't they don't need to have any social responsibility you know they're in it to build um and it was it was it it came off as possibly not exactly what he meant but it came off as a rather you know crappy so, statement. so are we talking about eisenman <laughs> graves Gap? eisenman thank you eisenman okay eisenman yes. Gra- okay in fact if you if you go and you watch his interview um on the uh, movie Citizen Architect, which was about the rural studio in Sam Mockby, um, he comes off as as he comes off as the architect nobody really wants to be, you know, um, because he's basically saying that there's we have no responsibility to the public, the client, or anything else. It's about the building. It's about you know what we feel is right. They're hiring us because of our knowledge and our abilities that um you know just shut up and let us do our job kind of thing nice guy you know? <laughs> that sounds like a guy you really want to work for and you know and we were talking about you know the the social you know the social responsibilities and social aspects of um you know of architecture and you know to get back to these um you know it's it's almost his attitude is what kind of created these, you know, these things that are now being, you know, uh, demolished all over the country. Um, but again, like I said, that, you know, I, I, I'd like to save that for maybe another topic some other time. Sure. Um, <laughs> because though it does sort of correspond with what we're talking about, it, you know, it's just not really. Um, I mean, it, you know, it can go back to the whole, you know, Corbu thing of healing the sick again. Again, you know, again, it's that visceral, emotional thing, and so I'm done. Shut up! <laughs> Shut thank, up. thank Shut you it. for the story, Uncle Cormac. I really appreciate that. I can go to bed now. <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> Another five minutes, and you probably will. Okay, don't everybody talk at the same time. <laughs> Just reading parts of this article. Well, you know. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead, Cormac. Evan's going to cut all this out anyway. That's fine. Okay. Well, you know, I was, I was just trying to, sit, you know, maybe circle back around to what we were talking about with, you know, the the often look, the often looked overlooked or often overlooked spaces, um, that you know, are usually the opportunity spaces. Then, like what? Like negative spaces or? Well, you know, he, you know, in, in the article, he's, he's more talking about the core and the circulation and stuff like that, you know, and in, you know, is kind of trying to bring it back to where we were talking about with these, these articles, please cut all this stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, already done. Already done. Well, I think it's interesting that, that they, He says, the result of this is a curious situation which architects need to spend much of their time and budget on the circulation and core spaces that are often overlooked in favor of swanky offices, lobbies, or conference rooms. Right, right. And so, you know, one of the, in the Gary building at MIT, you know, one of their strategies was every, 
it seems like every corridor um, there's a couple shots of them in here where they're they're lined with whiteboards and blackboards and um, they're just this is this is something that that we've used on quite a few of our projects as well when when we talk about how learning happens everywhere in schools um, you know you 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 create all of that space is space they're paying for they should be able to use it all oh yeah and that really once you start thinking like that it, instead of it's just being a double loaded corridor that only gets used between classes it actually is a usable space for education and learning and the exchange of ideas and stuff like that i think that that's that's part of the thing that makes it successful because they're talking about these interactions that just pop up out of nowhere they never saw it coming but this is the stuff that actually attracts people to these um, institutions to do work there because they know that they're going to be challenged at any moment and they're going to they they look forward to those challenges it's it's pretty cool way to think about space i mean even on you know neil i don't know how much of this you do on a residential level but um it seems like you know like that house you sent photos of that you were measuring it it just seems like every every space has been paid attention to even if it seems to be a secondary or tertiary space it's all you know a stair connecting two levels there's something going on there that makes it special right or makes it usable sure and you know it depends on the on the type of residential project you're working on 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 it's it's probably more difficult when you're trying to do an addition or uh, a small remodel and you're trying to stay within the you're you're staying within the footprint um you know you probably don't have any views or things you can do but it's certainly something you think about it's like okay what what is my experience when i come into this space and um you know what am i looking at and how do i use this space and how does it relate to the next one uh and you know so yeah i mean you think about these same types of things on a very different scale and and obviously you're not worried so much about interactions between the family uh down the hallway for instance um but you you know you do think about you know sometimes the transition spaces between um in fact i'm i was looking at a project earlier uh this week where we're going to add uh, we're going to take up a bedroom that's adjacent to a living space and you know kind of shift that living space make it bigger and such but the interesting thing about it was is that it's almost going to make the room too big and right now it kind of has this fireplace in it and suddenly now the fireplace is going to be out kind of almost in the middle of the space not even in the middle more towards the side and so it's like one of the interesting challenges that quite honestly I haven't solved yet but it's like okay well how do we how do we use this kind of eight to ten foot wide space that's just kind of it's got a stair coming into it it's got the kitchen's going to be coming into it and it's a lot of different things are happening so how do we how does that what what happens in that space mm-hmm. you know how, how do you either furnish it or make it feel like it's a part of the living room so you know, but it but it's kind of what they're what they're what some of these articles are talking about. It is that kind of uh, connection space, and and how does that function within the family? You know, maybe it becomes a space for them to to gather and do stuff in that's kind of in between some of these spaces. 
so it'll be it'll be interesting to see how this one works out but um you know but it is something in residential you know you think about all the time not so much corridors outside you know because once you're kind of inside the house although the house you're referring to evan is this one that was in the hills and it's a private residence and um so i can't really post pictures about that one but you guys have seen a few shots of it and um you know, but that one was very interesting to me because it was a completely custom home. It wasn't a production house, you know, or a tract house that was built 20 or 30, 40 years ago. And, um, you know, that one was up on a hill. It was overlooking a lake and it had a lot of interesting things going on where, you know, spaces were intersecting with other ones, not only uh, in uh, levels, but also in, in visual because there was glass in certain areas. And so you could see down through into areas and there was uh, indoor you know, outdoor connections that a were a lot of it you know visual as well as physical yeah yeah a lot of interesting yes stuff. i think one of the interesting things you know that you could approach any one of these projects with is how different people who are using the building have a different experience you know kids are going to experience space and the connection and flow of spaces much differently than adults would and men and women are going to experience things differently and and same thing in schools you know a a senior is going to experience something very differently than a a first-time freshman who comes into a campus and I I feel like that's that stuff is pretty interesting and one of the techniques that we've used when interviewing and even during the design process is to talk about the story of those different people and how they're going to experience things and really get the conversation going about the different groups of people who are going to be experiencing it in different ways and how those those needs are going to change over time or how their experiences are going to change oh, yeah. throughout the life of the project. You know what that reminds me of, Evan? When I was in second year design at uh, Cal Poly, one of, when we started, we had to, um, basically because we didn't have clients, we had to make them up. Yeah. And we had to, to, we had to make up everything about them, right? We had to make up everything. We had to do their whole backstories, uh, write bios for them and really understand who these people were. We essentially created our clients and then we had to design a house for our clients. And what made that project even more interesting is as we, you know, that was just like the first part of the quarter. And then, uh, you know, it might have only been like a two or two weeks or something. You know, we kind of got to that level. Yeah, you got to do it quick. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you do it quick. But what was interesting is that when when we got to that point, that the instructor just said, "Okay, well now um, you're going to partner up, and we're going to build teams, right?" And so you built a team. And so at least for me, I partnered with uh, three other people. And most of us were like teams of four. But then we had to, you know take all of those people and put them on one site Mm -hmm. and say, okay, we're going to design a house or multiple houses, however you want to do it. But we had to like, I remember I even took a picture of this. We, we came in on a Saturday and you know, we had the, the, the chalkboards in the classrooms kind of had those like double chalkboards that were, you know, as wide as the room. And we like filled almost the whole thing writing all about the different characters we were trying to design for and everything about them and how they could interact or, or would they interact with their personalities interact? And then how were we going to design something to respond to all of that? 
and it was a fascinating process. And, you know, I mean, second year design and I'm thinking, you know, I'm doing exactly what I would be doing for the essentially the rest of my career. Here I was doing it right in, you know, a second year design class at Cal Poly. Yeah, I just didn't I just didn't realize it at the time. Yeah. And uh, so it was a pretty fascinating um you know, process to go to. So I'm, I'm curious if any of our student listeners out there have been involved in a studio class like that. Yeah. That, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. We had similar stuff in our, when we were in, in studio as well. And it, it was pretty interesting even to, you're working with other team members and they approach that differently, right? I mean, sure. So not only are you designing with those potential clients in mind but you're also designing with and, and it's the same with the teams that we work with today where people have different points of view and different experiences and uh the way that all that comes together is always it's unique right for every project it's unique and it, it always is something that i think about it's like wow you know if if there was just one person different on this team if somebody replaced me it would be a completely different project and i always find that very interesting about what we do so if we replace Cormac, this podcast would be completely different. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that. Uh... Not saying it would be better. <laughs> I'm just saying it would be different. Okay. So with that, if you have any questions or comments, visit the website at arcaspeakpodcast.com. There you'll find links to our Twitter accounts and the Facebook page where you can join in on the conversation. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, the Arca Speak podcast hotline, or helpline, if you will, uh, <laughs> is at 415-484-8496. And, uh, you know, no help, us, no help guaranteed. No help guaranteed. Yes, we're, we're not uh, trained physicians, but we'll listen. We'll listen. So, so please give us a call. And uh, if you haven't done so already, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes. We especially like those. Yeah, and hey, everybody uh, who's posting pictures of their Arcaspeak t-shirts, uh, we love to see that. Oh, so that was all awesome. Those, all of yeah, them. Yeah, very cool. All the shirts gone have gone out, and so uh, hopefully everybody's gotten theirs. Um, maybe maybe not the one that went to New Zealand is there yet, but it should be there pretty soon. So very cool um, that, that you guys bought those shirts, so we really appreciate it. And uh, uh, till next time. Exactly. Right. Stay subscribed and thanks for listening. All right. See you later. See you guys. Bye. This is what you get. This is what you get.